Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have brought us all together today, that we might study your word and look at the life of Tamar and Judah and those involved around that story. Lord, we pray that as we look at that story, we would see our own lives clearly and that your word would touch our hearts and our minds and we'd be changed forever by the Spirit within us. Lord God, we thank you, we love you, and we praise you. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So the story of Tamar is what we're looking at today. And it's a rather unique story. It's a story of justice done right and wrong in so many ways. How often do we feel wronged, right, as an injustice has been done to us? What's our response? How do we respond? What do we do? Right? Do we take matters into our own hand? Do we do what we think is right for ourselves, for others? Today we're going to look at this story of one of the women found in the lineage of Jesus. And as we look at this story, there are two things I want us to ask. First, maybe we don't use the software ever again. Is justice being done rightly in the story? I'm going to flip out. And that's on recording now. <laughs> but I won't cuss, I promise. I might. I don't know. It's flipping all over the place. This is flipping great. Oh, my Lord in heaven, help me. Whew, yep. Oh, my goodness, it did it again. This is only getting worse. Oh my goodness, it is just killing me now. Every time I tap on the screen I need to be on, it jumps to a different screen. It's okay though. Why would God include Tamar? Right, That's another question we need to ask. Why would he include her in the lineage of Jesus Christ? Why would he do that? Right, We've read the story now, most of us, I think. I hope. Why would he do that? Before we can get into our story of tomorrow, however, we need to understand the larger story surrounding this brief interlude, right? Because it is a brief story. What we get prior to this story is the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We'll often hear them referenced as the fathers of Israel. God will rename Jacob as Israel, and it's his sons, the 12 tribes that eventually are known as Israel. And Judah we're going to find in our story is one of those sons. Just prior to Genesis chapter 38, in Genesis 37, we see Judah and his brothers with Joseph, right? Joseph is going to save Israel and others, and he's going to save the 12 tribes from famine. But just prior to this, his wonderful loving brothers have thrown him into a well because they're jealous of him, and they've sold him into slavery. Right? That's how great this family is. They love each other dearly. They're great brothers, but they can't stand their brother Joseph. Just after this, we get the story of Joseph in the house of Potiphar. He's sold into slavery, and a man named Potiphar buys him. 
and puts him over his household eventually. And Potiphar's wife tries to hit on Joseph. And it's true. Get him to sleep with her. And Joseph maintains his purity in all of this, right? He does the right thing. Flees from her. She steals his cloak and accuses him of trying to take advantage of her, right? But Joseph does the right thing. And all of this surrounds this story now that we find ourselves in Genesis 38. And that's some of what's called, in literature terms, a foil, right? Where things are being played off one another. So we have Joseph and Judah being played off each other. How one responds to sexual desires and how another does. And we see it done right and well, and we see it gonna, we're going to see it done poorly. The other thing I want us to look at is how important is family? Right? We're going to see family represented in this passage and how well family takes care of family or not. So let's look at our story. Genesis chapter 38 verse 1 reads it happened at that time that judah went down from his brothers right so they just sold him sold joseph so he leaves them and he turns aside to a certain adulamite whose name was hira so judah leaves his brothers after selling joseph into slavery and he goes and he sets up his tent he's on the way to tend his flocks we know right we're going to get that later in the story so we know this is happening, and he meets this guy, his name's Hira, who just happens to be an Adulamite. This is important, right? He's a foreigner. We saw this with Ruth. They emphasized over and over again that she was a foreigner, right? And we're going to get that here. And his name's Hira. So he just happens to meet this guy. Hira just happens to be a foreigner. And he's going to become, we'll see later in the passage, his friend. And just saying, if you need stuff done, it's good to have a foreigner as a friend to do your stuff for you. Because he's never around your family. And we're going to see that later in the story. I'll try not to throw this. In verses 2 through 3, while he's there, Judah sees the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and he went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. I want to try and give Judah a lot of credit here. As much as I possibly can, but I just can't. See, Judah's a misogynist. He's a horrible person. What's Judah's wife's name? It's not Shua. That's her dad. We never learn her name. It's never mentioned in Scripture. She's only Shua's daughter. That's all she's going to be referenced as. Judah never once mentions the name of his wife. What we get here is he sees a pretty girl and so he takes her it says right he took her 
and he went into her and he made babies. Judah has a problem with the ladies. And when he sees what he wants, he takes it and he does with it as he pleases. We're going to see this often in Judah's life. Now, I do believe they're married, right? Because later on it's going to be she's going to be called his wife, right? But it's interesting that he doesn't it doesn't say he married her and went in and had children. No, he took her, right? Because it was about him seeing what he wanted and taking what he wanted. Now, culturally, he does it appropriately by getting married. But psychologically, he's simply taking what he wants. Oh, and they have this child, and they name him Ur. Interesting name. It's what I would never name my firstborn. Because with your firstborn son, what you're looking toward is an heir, right? And the children he's going to have. As your lineage continues through them, Ur means childless. Yep, that's what Judah named his son. Why, I have no clue. Because it makes absolutely no sense. Oh, she has another child. She conceives again. And she bears a son. She calls his name Onan. Onan means, Onan means healthy one. Sounds like a good name, I guess, to name your child. Healthy? I don't know. Won't help him later. And she has another child. Verse 5. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. We don't know what his name means. Shelah. We have no clue. The important point here in the verse is, where's Judah when this child is born? Right? If you know your wife is about to bear a child, you have a tendency to stick close to home. But not Judah. See, I think Judah has a lot of interpersonal problems. Right? His relationships, not a single one of them from what I can tell, are healthy. None of them. Now, this goes back through his line a lot. I mean, look how he treated his own son, his brother. He was willing to sell his own brother into slavery. What's interesting is Judah will become the largest of the 12 tribes. They're going to take up almost all of southern Israel. Their tribe will rule the other tribes. And their relationships are never very healthy. Verse 6, it says, And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now at first, it might seem normal. And it is that a father picks a wife for their children, right, during this time. We see it in... Abraham chooses Isaac's wife for him. Isaac chooses Jacob's wife for him, right? It's not an uncommon thing. But I think that 
there's more to this, right? Because Judah chose his wife. Right? He went, saw her, married her. So you would think he would tell Ur to go find a wife. But I honestly think what happened here is Judah was out and about, saw Tamar and said, she'll make a good wife for my boy. And he chooses her. Because he saw something that was pleasing to his eye. Not only that, but you have to kind of wonder, if you were Ur and your name was childless, would you pick a wife? What's it matter? But I think Ur had a lot of other problems. Evidently. Right? Right? So, verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Um, he doesn't do this a lot at this point. No. Is this no. like one of the only ones you read? Two times so, this happens. Where some three times, sorry, where someone sins and the Lord is the one that either says it's twice only where the Lord Himself puts them to death that I can think of. There are other times where things happen and the Lord says, put them to death for their sin, right? They always have historical precedence. And this has historical precedence as well because things are shifting in Israel's history now. Because up until this point, Israel as a country didn't exist, right? Now you have the 12 tribes. Israel has been named, right? Jacob's name has been changed to Israel. The nation has been created. And every time you see something like that happen historically, a major historical event, the Lord for whatever reason, has a tendency to go, your sin is beyond belief, you must die. Right? And so we see this with Ur. And here's the hard part. We all want to go, what did he do? It was so wicked, God doesn't even choose to say what it was. Right? But if I have to look and ask because... You see the sins of the father are passed down to the sons, right? What happened? What did Ur do? I don't know. I know what I think. He was a very bad man, right? He was very bad. And if I had to venture a guess, it dealt with sexual sin right because we're going to see that through this story we see it in his father we see it all around him and we're going to see it in his children's 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 children all right so something along those lines my guess is he was like a serial rapist something along those lines he was bad to the point that god said you must die so he dies. And here's Judah's response. He goes to his brother and says, Hey, you have to go into your brother's wife. Not to Tamar. He's not going to name her. right? He doesn't use women's names. He doesn't relate to them to the point that he's even willing to use their names. 
Women to him are simply objects of sexual desire. He refuses to say her name. And he says, look, Onan, go into your brother's wife, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. He expresses no remorse at the loss of his firstborn son. We don't see any of that. It's simply, hey, Onan, get up. Go in there and do what you need to do with this woman. So let's look at where this comes from. This idea that you bear offspring for your brothers, your brother if he dies and has no offspring. So this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. Verses 5 through 10. It reads, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife, so they're to be married, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Right? So his name is to continue on. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, this gets odd, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my, brother's, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of, this, of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. She's going to show him. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel. The house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Whew, I don't want that. Your name will be the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't help but laugh. Does it mean something else? You know, that's what it means. It's just weird. Right. So think about what we saw with Ruth right. and Boaz, right? The sandal has significant meaning. Right? You control your footwear kind of thing. Right? And if you make a an agreement, you take it off and you show them. It says my sandal. I made this deal. There's and you, a lot of people that didn't wear shoes back then. Is this maybe why? No, they all did. They would have all worn sandals. All adult men would have at least. Right? Children might not have. But the men would have. Women might not have. But the men certainly would have. Maybe but, that's why the Muslims have such a problem with the bottom. Yeah, you don't show the bottom of your f yeah. sandals, yeah. right? Your shoes. It's a Middle Eastern thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where this was at. And so there was something clearly here, right, that you maintain control of it. And if someone pulled it off of you, it was kind of like they were taking your name in vain, almost, right? That would be the closest thing I could equate it to. Um, 
A little strange, we can say that. Back to our story. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Yep, so we see the results of a father. <laughs> Y'all stop laughing. It says semen. I'm laughing because she just looked at Alyssa and was like, Oh my God. <laughs> you know what I said? Uh. <laughs> right? So, so here's what happens. We're looking at Onan. This is a man whose father has problem, who has problems with forming attachments and relationships, right? The children will struggle with the same thing. Onan is carrying that on. Right? In a weird way. This is in the impact that fathers have, right? Fathers have this kind of impact on their children, particularly boys. They carry what we carry, right? They waste what we waste, right? The struggles that Judah had, now Onan is carrying on. Ur had as well. They brought Ur's death because of it. Mothers don't tend to have this kind of impact on their children. Why exactly? I'm uncertain. However, I just know that if you look throughout history, you will see this reality played out over and over and over again. That the sins of the father are carried on and passed on to the children. Not the sins of the mother, but the sins of the father are passed on to the children. Not just the boys, but the children until a child rises up eventually in that line and then the power of Jesus cuts off that generational curse that's there. Well, could that be because, you know, the father is like the representative of the leadership? Absolutely, you know? right? But there's more to it than even that, I believe. Right? I think there's something that's not just learned because that says it's learned behaviors, right? It's more than just a learned <laughs> behavior. And I think that we can, I can say that in watching my nephew, right? He has behaviors that are clearly not learned, but are my brother's behaviors. He was two months old when my brother died. He didn't learn a thing from my brother. And yet acts so much like him. He is a spitting image and not just in looks, but behaviors. Right? He didn't learn those behaviors. They were passed on genetically somehow. There is something that the Lord passes on to children from their fathers that goes beyond just what we see day to day in those lives. So we're not too long ago that children get most of their DNA and all their stuff from the father. Yep. Yeah, I know. You know that, yes. You, know, you would think they would get it from the woman because right. it come from the woman, but you know, according to what I read, most of it comes from the fathers. Right. Lineage. And I think it shows, right, we oftentimes think of sin as just behaviors, right? In the fall, it's like we want to say in the church, we started to act poorly, right? We act badly now. That's what sin is. But all of us is fallen. Our DNA, our genetic makeup is fallen. 
And so the sins of the father are passed on to the children. And oftentimes children who never knew their fathers do the same things their fathers did, whether they knew them or not. And so I think there's so much in us that's fallen, we don't realize the extent to which it goes, the good, fall. Good example of that. Um, when I might share that my dad walked away when I was like eight or nine years old, and then I haven't seen him for like 45 years, well, I had the opportunity to go down and see him. Now, I, I remember stuff he did, but I was only eight years old. And like, we both cross our legs the same way. Right. We both eat the same way. Things, I mean, it, it, it just blew my mind, things that I was seeing that I do, that he does, but I was never taught that by him. Right, it's just, but you do it. It's yes, in you. Yes, it's, it's just... Yeah, uh, that's there. DNA, I guess. I don't exactly. know. Exactly. I don't have anything else yeah, to go with, right? That all, genetic makeup yeah. is in us from our fathers. Yeah. Um, doesn't mean you have to be that, though, right? Jesus can change those things. Jesus is the key. Jesus is the answer to those things that we don't want to pass on then to our sons. Jesus can bring all of that to an end, right? Because there is a reality in which Genesis 34, for, or Exodus 34, verse 7 says, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, right? That's not what we're looking at. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Right? It's the fathers pass on sin. Wait, there's something important there. Jesus was born of a woman. Right? If sin is passed on by the father, who had to be the father for Jesus to be sinless? Had to be God. Yes. Right? Joseph couldn't father Jesus because Joseph was fallen. He had to be fathered by God for him to be seen sinless. Right? That's an important point to not only the lineage, but the understanding of how Jesus could be both God and man. And why he had to be both God and man in order to act in our place as a sacrifice that he was. So that that curse of the fall would stop. So back to our story. Verse 10 says, ah, Sorry, Onan. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God put him to death as well. Right? So God is looking at this lineage and even now saying, this lineage is important. Right? From this lineage, from Tamar, this lineage must continue. It has to, because from this is going to come Obed and Boaz. It's going to come David and eventually Jesus. So this lineage is going to continue one way or another. The another might be weird, right? But God is going to protect this lineage. you got to ask yourself, how important is it to God that this was protected? He just put two brothers to death. Right, for not doing they, what they needed yeah. to do. Absolutely. Because they failed the Lord. He put them to death. What make you think that, that they stopped the cycle, eventually realizing what's happening? But we tend not to see it, right? We don't see those things in us oftentimes that are causing these things to happen. 
right? Until after the fact. Yeah. But it, yeah, I don't think they would have thought that at the time, right? It wasn't later until someone was writing this, right, the book of Genesis, and the Lord was sharing these things with the author, right? The Lord was telling the author what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and therefore God put him to death. Does it say he wrote this book? Um, there's disagreement on it. We'll say that. <laughs> yeah. There's disagreement. I would say, yeah, I would say that the book is written probably by two different authors, Moses and Joshua. Joshua takes over where Moses left off and leads the people into the promised land, but there are things written in Genesis that Moses could not have written because he was dead. Right? But I believe at this point, this is probably Moses writing. Moses writes the majority of the book of Genesis. The last several chapters, I believe, are written by Joshua because they're recording Moses' death. You're not going to write about your own death. Right? Um, I suppose if God showed it to you, but I don't think God is that mean. He might take your life, but he's not going to tell you, this is how you will die. Now, Moses knows he's going to die. Right? He takes him up on the mountain. But he, I don't think he told Moses, oh, by the way, now write your death. And now we're going to go make it happen, right? That's kind of brutal. Now, we won't go there. I know. God can seem, at times, pretty rough, right? Tough love. Do what's right. Do what's right by your wife, right? How does that hit us as men? Do what's right by your wife. If you don't, God takes that seriously. Right? Protect her. Love her. God commands men, love your wives as Jesus loved the church. Death comes. This is how serious sin is. Right? And, and this is how serious God takes sin. Onan's name, right? What did I say it meant? Healthy. The healthy one, right? He may have been super fit, super strong, super healthy. All of that meant nothing in the face of sin. When the fall happens, death comes. There was no death when there was no sin. The moment sin came into being, physical death came into being. No one had died until someone sinned. And the moment someone sinned, the book of Genesis goes, hey, this guy lived 150 years, died. This guy lived 700 and some years, died. This guy lived, died. This guy lived, died. Death came with sin. That's why we see in Romans 1, verse 32, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, sin, deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. We haven't changed one bit, right? As much as we know sin is sin, we don't only accept it in our own lives oftentimes, we give approval to those around us who practice sin. That way we don't feel guilty. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, 
death comes from sin. What Onan received, he deserved. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's only through the forgiveness of those sins, through deaths, through Jesus' death, His blood shed on the cross, that we might receive that forgiveness, that the wages of sin might be forgiven and done away with. So Onan deserved, Ur deserved what they received. You know what's scary about that? We all deserve the same thing. Every one of us here today deserves no different than Onan for every moment we ever sin. We deserve right here, right now, to be struck down dead by God. That's what he declares. Yet he's merciful. But since we believe, we don't no longer deserve. Exactly. There you go. We've received the free gift. We still deserve those wages, right? We deserve to die. But God says, you don't have to pay that penalty because Jesus chose to die for you. He took the death we deserved. So Judah comes to Tamar. Judah says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house. Tell Shelah, his next son, my son grows up. So he's younger than the other two. right? For he feared that he would die as well, like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. I, I get that, right? I understand it. You marry off one brother. You pick this woman. She marries off to your first son. He dies. Didn't work out. Marries off to the second one. He dies. Whew. I don't know about the third. Right? I get that from Judah's perspective. I would be slow to marry him off as well. And so the fact that he's not of age, Judah sees as a blessing. Right? And he's going to take advantage of it. And at this point, we have to ask, does he ever intend, right, at this moment, right, does he just forget or does he intend? Look, go away from here. Go to your father's house. Just remain a widow until he grows up. Can Judah be trusted? We already know not. Right? And I believe at this moment, he doesn't forget to send Shelah to her or to bring her to him. He's getting her out of his house and she's going to remain a widow the rest of her life. That's his intent. Verse 13 says, then, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. You never know her name. When Judah was comforted, I think he suffered, right? He lost this woman who he loved, I believe. Yeah, I don't know. He goes up to Timnah to his sheep shearers where he kept his sheep. He and his friend, right? Hira the Adulamite go. <clears throat> and it's not long that Tamar finds out. Tamar was told, Hey, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar hatches a plan. 
She takes off her widow's garments. She covers herself with a veil. She wraps herself up. And she sits at the entrance to Enaim, whatever that is, we don't really know, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. She knows her father-in-law's problems. She knows full well He had an eye for her because he chose what he liked when he saw her for her son, for his son, right? He wouldn't have chosen someone he was not attracted to. That's Judah's problem. He sees what he wants and he takes it. He saw what he wanted and he took it for his son. So Tamar goes and she hangs out on the road where he's going to be. And what do we read next? When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had her face covered. Why does he, she think she's a prostitute because her face is covered? We don't really know today. We don't know. Because it doesn't seem like it was a common practice that prostitutes covered their faces. Right? Because for the typical prostitute, they didn't really care. Yeah, and their face was a piece of what was sold. Right? Let's be honest. Sounds bad, right? But you got to put all your wares out there and your face is part of the wares, right? Um, and cult prostitutes, they didn't hide their face because it was an accepted thing, right? Cult prostitutes. In fact, if you wanted a good harvest, it was expected you would sow your seed with a cult prostitute for the gods to bless you. Yep, right? I mean, if you think about it, right? You, what do you do as a farmer? You take the seed. You plant the seed in the ground, you water the seed, and it grows, right? Cult prostitutes came about because the thinking was, the seed was there, it was fertile, you went and you watered it, and it gave growth, right? There's a certain commonality there. And, and so that's what farmers did. Yep, kind of odd, I know, for us today. They didn't think anything about it. She hid herself for the purpose of seducing him. That's what she meant to do. She went there with a plan. And he thought what he wanted to think in order to justify his lustful desires. Oh, this has got to be a prostitute. Because that's okay. right? He can get away with that. I know today we don't think that's okay. But during that time, it would not have been seen what it is today. So he sees this cult prostitute and thinks, hey, I'm all right. I just lost my wife. I need to be comforted. And he's going to do that. And so he sees what he wants and he turns to her at the roadside. And he says, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she says, what will you give me that you may come into me? Right? So she's asking, not just like, to put it bluntly, she says, how much do you think I'm worth? What are you willing to pay for this service? Isn't this great stuff, Liz? 
and she answers him. He answers and he says, I will send you a young goat from the flock. You're worth a goat, babe. She says, if you give me a pledge until you send it, I don't trust you. I don't know you're going to really send that goat. Give me a pledge, right? And he says, what pledge do you want? What pledge shall I give you? And so she replies, she had this cooked up already. Let me tell you, because this isn't something I think you just come up with off your head. She says, give me your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived. All right, what's the signet, the cord, and the staff? So the signet would have been a ring of some sort, right? That would have had a crest on it that, that identified him. That would have been used to seal wax documents, right? And so she takes this thing that says, your name. And then the cord would have been a cord that signified him as well, that he would have hung from his staff. So that, for instance, from a distance, you were walking up and you would have been like, hey, is that Judah? Not really sure. Looks kind of like him. You would have looked at his cord hanging from his staff and you would have been able to recognize him from a distance. So, for instance, this is something that military take on later with a banner. Right? So it, it signified what grouping was there. You could tell from a distance from their banner. So this would have been an, like an individual banner. So these are things that would have stood out and said, I am Judah. And she takes those things in particular. And he just gives them up. So, how... I'm trying to be nice with this guy to a certain degree, right? And give him some credit. And say, like, he's thinking about something other than just one thing on his mind. But there, there can be no doubt he's been with a prostitute. She has everything that says, I'm Judah. He gave it to her. Right? This is how messed up this dude is. This is how messed up this family is. Right? That this woman would set up her own father-in-law to sleep with her in order to get pregnant. Right? But she knew, she knew he would be willing to do it. He, this guy has a real problem with women and self-control. Right? To the point that, let's think about it, he's giving the very things he knows are going to identify him, and he's just not worried about it. Because he thinks so little of her and her word right now that if she's a prostitute and she comes and goes, Hey, you forgot to give me that goat, and I know it was you because I was a prostitute and you slept with a prostitute, he's like, Whatever. I don't care. I got what I wanted. It just doesn't matter to him. This is how messed up he is. He sees what he likes and he takes it regardless of the cost. Even the possible cost to himself. He arose and he went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. 
she isn't a whole lot better. Right? I mean, she had every right to go to him and say, hey, Shayla's a man now. Let's do the right thing. We need to marry. And I think publicly if she had done that, he would have done the right thing. But we have to have all this weird subterfuge and strangeness. So now not only is she a widow, she's a pregnant, unmarried widow. She's in a lot of trouble. So Judah then sends the young goat. We don't want people to know, so I use my friend, the Adulamite, right, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. But here I can't find her. She's not there because she's gone home. She's left that area. And so he does what he thinks is the right thing. Here it does. And he asks the men of the place, hey, where's the cult prostitute who was at Enaim, which is probably a crossroad, at the roadside? And they said, there's no cult prostitute has been here. There isn't one here. We don't know what you're talking about. So he returns to Judah and he says, I didn't find her. Also, the men of the place said there was no cult prostitute there. So it's kind of like here is going back and he goes and he says, hey, look, I don't know who you slept with, but there have been no prostitute there. So how does Judah respond? Judah turns to him and he replies, let her keep the things as her own. Or we shall be laughed at. You see, I did the right thing. I sent this young goat and you couldn't find her. We tried to find her so that she could be paid for the sex that we had. But she chose to leave. And well, we don't, we, I don't want to be made a laughing stock. Right? He says we. Here, here is not going to be laughed at. Nobody cares about him in this story. Right? It's Judah's stuff that's gone missing. And well, we don't want people to know that those things that were really important have disappeared. About three months later, she's starting to show. Judah was told, hey, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, she's been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah says, bring her out and let her be burned. So let's look at this idea, she's been immoral, because it's important. Um, why is she immoral? See, here's the thing. Shelah and her are pledged to one another, right? They're essentially engaged. And in ancient times, when you were, the moment you were pledged to one another or engaged, legally, it was just as if you were married, right? So any sexual acts outside of that would have been seen as adultery. And of course, hey, Adultery, under the law, is death. Of course, you're supposed to be stoned to death. And Judah declares she should be burned. The other problem with this is that the husband is the one that's supposed to bring the charges against her. So it's Shayla's responsibility to stand up and say, bring her out and let her be stoned, technically, to follow the law. Right? But Judah takes over. 
Not surprising, right? He has problems with boundaries and relationships and his children. And so he just takes over and goes, bring her out. Let her be burned. Because he doesn't like women. He doesn't say bring Tamar out, right? Her out. Let her be burned. As she was being brought out, verse 25 says, she sends word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. I have to be honest, I think it would be kind of neat to have watched Judah's face. Yeah. <laughs> right? When this messenger comes up and goes, hey, Tamar sent these to you, and whoever these are, we don't know. That's the man who got her pregnant. Tamar <coughs> knew exactly who they were. He knew she knew that was his segment, that was his cord. There would have been no doubt. They knew who owned them. This is probably the greatest entrapment ever recorded in history. <laughs> it doesn't get any better than this. As messed up as this is, right? This is messed up. It is by, this is horrible what she's done, right? She chose to sleep with her father-in-law in order to get pregnant. Do you think she's concerned with carrying on Ur's name by this point in time? <laughs> it's got nothing to do with it, right? This is all about getting back at Judah for not giving Shayla as a husband. Exactly, right? She is getting at him for all she possibly can. Then Judah identified them and said, She's more righteous than I am. That was really hard, though. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, none of one, no one here has been righteous, right? This is all messed up. No one's been righteous. No one here is righteous. But he thinks, she's more righteous than me, though. Oh, wait. This is a wonderful note. And he did not know her again. Yeah, the author just needed to let us know they didn't have sex again, right? That's what that means. He didn't know her again. Um, Judah's a better man for it. He gains a little self-control, I guess. I don't know. Let me maybe just push on because it's getting weird. Yeah. It's all weird. Okay, it's time to have the babies. Verse 27 says, And when the time of the labor came, there were twins. We're not having just one, but two. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. Right? So this was common practice, because firstborn is important. Right? Culturally, it's really important to know which is the first. And it was here because he's not going to actually be the firstborn. But as he drew back in his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. 
Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means to breach. Really creative. Poor Perez. <laughs> Your name is Breach. You have breached well. You came forth in power and strength. I, I don't, and like, Judah doesn't name him. Judah's not in the story. He's done. Right? These are his boys. And he's not going to be around. Which, well, speaks to his family. Right? He, his relationship problems that he had. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zirah, which most likely means um, brilliance or shiny one, right? From the red cord is what it is believed. Don't know if it has much impact. But from Perez, the secondborn, technically, right? Because God doesn't care about firstborns. Right? That's a man thing. We're concerned with the firstborn. And we want the firstborn to be a man, right? So he can carry on our lineage. God doesn't have those same things, right? That's just not God. God chooses who he wills. He chooses who he wants. Regardless of first, second, third, fourth, it doesn't matter. So I asked us to think, right? Who was unjustly treated here? Everybody who's being mentioned in the story. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Everybody was unjustly treated because of sin. Right? We just have this tendency to sin. It is who we are. We will we will do wrong to others. Others will do wrong to us. How are we going to respond? Do we take justice into our own hands? Romans 12, 17 through 19 reads, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Right? We see where God took vengeance twice in this story. right? And then we see the ramifications when people took it into their own hand. Right? Tamar took vengeance into her own hands against Judah. It was wrong. Right? She committed she technically committed adultery and should have been probably killed. She's not. That's mercy. She wasn't married, was she? She was pledged to be married. She was married. So it's just as she though she were married, mm -hmm. and therefore she was deserving of death under the law for her actions. She doesn't suffer that. If his wife dies, is a man allowed to remarry? Yes. He could have had multiple wives. She can only have one husband, right? But what's interesting is we don't know who takes her as a wife. I have no doubt she came into the household of Judah 
Now, if Shayla becomes her husband, I don't know. Because we know Perez and Zira become, are in this line, right? And so they're the children of Judah, essentially. Judah will probably raise them. We don't get those details, right? We know he's listed as dad. That's what we know in the lineage. So why is Tamar listed within the lineage of Judah, or Jesus? Why is she listed given all of this story, right? This is all we have of her. This is the story God chose to give us of Tamar and then say, yeah, she's a great-great-great-great-grandmother to Jesus. Why is she put here? Why was Ruth put there? Why is Ruth in that lineage? I have thoughts and ideas. And I know we all want to know. But I want us to wait. Because we have to ask that same question. Right? Of Rahab and of Bathsheba. Why are they in that lineage? So once we've looked at all these women. Then we'll ask ourselves again. Why did God choose these women to be in the story? Is that the only four? The birth of Jesus. Those are the only ones. Right? We have another, right? Really? Mary? Because she's named in the lineage as well. Right? Why did God choose these women? And, and it's a good question to ask because I think there's, there are things there and there are answers there that are helpful for us to see and know. <clears throat> Here's one thing I can say. They all, every single one of them, found themselves in unique and scandalous situations and were in need of a rescuer. And were in need of what? A rescuer. They all needed to be rescued, right? Tamar was a widow who was going to die alone, without children. She needed to be rescued. She took that rescue into her own hands, right? Ruth needed to be rescued. And there's a sense, right? When we looked at that story, Naomi and she took it into their own hands and did some pretty weird stuff. Right? Went into Boaz in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. uncovered his lower parts, scooted up there next to him, got close. It was weird, right? If they had been caught, it would have certainly been scandalous for Boaz. And Boaz didn't need that. They needed rescuing. Every one of these. We're going to see the same for Rahab. Bathsheba is not as easy to see. Right? But it's going to be there. And the idea, the need for rescue is something I think we can all identify with. Right? We all need Jesus to come into our lives. And usually more often than not, to rescue us from ourselves. It's usually not because of what someone else has done. It's because of the things we've done ourselves. Judah was his own worst enemy. Ur was his own worst enemy. Onan was his own worst enemy. Tamar was her own worst enemy. Right? Now they had all kinds of junk happening around them, right? There's no doubt there. But they were all culpable in their own sins. We're no different. We've all had things from our past that have shaped us, 
that have caused us to make decisions that we shouldn't. We all have things in our past presently that adversely affect our present. But Jesus. Jesus died that we might be healed. From sexual sins, just like Judah. From relational struggles, just like these people. From marital problems, Jesus is our rescue story. Jesus died that we might be healed. Jesus died that we might be redeemed. Jesus died that we might know peace.